But uh, we are beginning a new book series in Nehemiah, and often people ask me, how do you pick the books we're going to study? Usually four ways, I talk to the pastoral staff, second way I talk to the elders, then I have what I call pastoral intuition, I have an idea of where people are at in the church, and I pray through the contents of the, the Bible, and I say, you know, I really feel that this is a book we need to go through, and then also prayer. Um, but when it comes to the preaching the book Nehemiah, I have never wanted to preach the book of Nehemiah, to be honest with you. Every time I heard it preached as a young believer, it usually was when they wanted to raise money for a building project. And I, I didn't like it. I felt like people used the book of Nehemiah as a manipulative tool to try to get more money. And so every time I read Nehemiah, I've read it a number of times, I just can't study it. I never could really study it. So back in October, pastoral staff was meeting and they said, hey, Matthew's going to end and uh, what are we going to do starting January? And one of the pastors said, why don't we do Nehemiah? We're going to be in the middle of a building project. <laughs> I, oh, I, I didn't want to do it. But another uh, pastor on the staff said, you know what, I love Nehemiah. Every time I've read the book of Nehemiah, I have to be honest with you, I have been more, not only encouraged in the grace and the faithfulness of God, but I've loved my brother and more. I think that'd be a great choice. So after listening to that, I decided to, hey, I'm going to read it on my own and I'll get back to you guys and study it. And after studying the book of Nehemiah, after really meditating on it, I was intrigued about two things the book of Nehemiah teaches. Number one, the book of Nehemiah is about rest, restoration, restoring what was once broken and bringing it back to full health and strength. And it's also about having faith and perseverance to bring things back to full health and strength. In other words, Nehemiah is a book about life. It's a book about brokenness. And if you noticed anything about this world, it's broken. It's full of broken people with broken dreams, broken marriages, broken bodies, broken pasts, full of regret, with a lot of people who see nothing but brokenness in the future. So you could say the book of Nehemiah is always relevant. Jesus even said, in this world you're going to have trouble, but fear not. I've overcome the world. Second reason I like the book of Nehemiah, really meditating it, is because of Nehemiah. Nehemiah loved people. Like he cared. He actually cared. He loved God, but because he loved God, he loves God's people. Then when he saw God's people suffer, he had to do something. He wasn't a sideline sitter. He was moved, and because of being moved, he had to do something. And in a sense, it's what our church needs, to have more Nehemiah. So if you could open up to chapter 1, we are going to go through the whole chapter, but I just want to begin by reading the first four, chapter, uh, first four verses, first four chapters, but just go through, no, first four verses. I'm reading from the NIV. Here's what it says. Verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. 
In the month of Kislev, that would be about late November, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And then verse 4 says this, When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. The theme of this is broken. Chapter 1 is all about being broken. Not just broken walls, but broken hearts. I was trying to think of what, what, is the, what would be a good phrase for this theme. I, I remember reading a story about a guy by the name of Bob Pierce. He began the ministry called Samaritan's Purse. I'm not sure if you know what Samaritan's Purse is, but what it is is when there's a catastrophe in the world, like the tsunami in Indonesia or earthquake in Haiti, Samaritan's Purse gets all of these doctors together, they get 747s, load them with all kinds of goods, and head into the land of catastrophe and offer all doctor services for free. And the reason why is the guy who started at Bob Pierce had a conviction on his heart, and it is this, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. And that's what chapter 1 Nehemiah is all about. I remember even reading in Japan when the Japanese tsunami happened and all of these cities along the coast were buried underwater. Samaritan's Purse got a 747 together with 90 tons of materials and food and plastic for people to make shelters. And in two weeks, they were able to take care of 19,000 households and 80 people in a Buddhist country came to Christ and they brought 7,500 volunteers to help. It's unbelievable what they did. It's because their hearts were broken for these desolate people because they knew God's heart was broken for them. And that's who Nehemiah is. So you could say it like this. My hope is after you hear chapter 1, you would say, I want to have a heart that can be moved when I see and when I hear the needs of people. I want us to be a church loaded with Nehemiahs. So let's begin with context. I could take a whole sermon on the context, but I'll just go through it for a couple, take a couple minutes. Nehemiah is living in this city called Babylon. Actually, it becomes Susa. Jerusalem is where God's people had the temple and the city where the walls are broken down. So basically, According to the Old Testament, God wanted to take a people for himself and put them in the land of Judah. That's where Jerusalem is. And he wanted those people to glorify his name in the city that bore God's name. Over the years, the Jews, the Israelites, stopped worshiping God and they started worshiping idols made of stone and wood. And it was grieving the heart of God. Two weeks ago, we talked about King Josiah. King Josiah was one of the last kings before all of these people were exiled or what was happened is Babylon came and ransacked Jerusalem, 
destroyed the temple, grabbed the people, and traveled 1,500 miles back to Babylon and used them as slaves. So after Josiah died, the people went back to idolatry and God had enough. So he sent Babylon in to do two things. To basically be used as a tool to cause Israel to repent, but also to let the land go basically in peace for 70 years because the Jews ignored God's law about Sabbath years for the land. So the first exile was in 600 B.C. Babylon came in, wrecked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and the wall. About 70 years after that, Babylon was taken over by Persia. Persia was, they were, they were favorable to the Jews, so they started letting some of the Jews from Babylon go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel was the first king that was sent back, and Artaxerxes led him in 530. About uh, 50 years later, this guy named Ezra came with the Bible for all of those people that went back to Jerusalem to teach them the law again. And then, 13 years after that, you get this guy named Nehemiah. And he hears a report from his brother. And his brother said, Nehemiah, there's a lot of people back in Jerusalem, about 50,000 people. The temple's rebuilt. They're starting to obey the law again. But the wall is destroyed. In four cities in the ancient world, the wall was their protection and their glory. It kept them safe, but it also was like a promotion to all the other countries that our God is within us and he'll take care of us. So that's the context. If we look at Nehemiah again in verse 3, basically this book is kicked off with his brother comes back from exile, goes to Babylon, which is Susa at that time, the citadel of Susa. Nehemiah says, brother, tell me about it. Starts telling him about how the wall is broken down. And look in verse 3. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down, I wept, and for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God of heaven. He was broken. And my question is, why was Nehemiah so quickly to be broken? What breaks a heart? Because I'll be honest with you, there's not many broken hearts in our culture. Human beings, especially in America, have a terrible propensity for callousness, for being hardened, for being angry at people we disagree with, to set up factions and join teams and get mad. Our hearts, they harden quicker than like mashed potatoes after Thanksgiving meal. Somebody makes us mad and we're insulted and we hold grudges. I earned that money, I'm not giving it away. We have hearts like soil that has been beaten down by the hot sun for too long where it's hardened over and you try to plant a seed and it won't even lodge in there anymore. We need to have our hearts renewed and broken. We call broken hearts having a con contrite spirit what that means. So how does God break our hearts? Well, in two ways, he wants us to love him. A broken heart begins with a love for God. And the way that I love God is through his word. God's word reveals his thoughts and his will for the, for the world. It reveals what breaks him, what makes him sad, 
makes them glad and what makes them mad. And so when I read God's word, my heart starts changing. Romans 10 says it like this. Faith, which means seeing through, seeing through the lens or the eyes of God, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. In Nehemiah's case, he was broken for Israel because God was. Go to Psalm 137. Psalms is right in the middle of the Bible. And Psalm 137 is a scripture that talks about the city of Jerusalem and the glory of God in that city. And it was written before Nehemiah was even born. And so you can guess that he knew this psalm. And listen to what it says. Psalm 137 verse 1. It says, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. So this is written from the point of view that somebody that was exiled or taken from Jerusalem and they were in Babylon. And they're sitting now by the rivers of Babylon remembering their homeland. And it says, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. That's like our, you know, our musical instruments. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. And they're mocking. It's a mockery. Verse 4. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So for the Jew of that time, Jerusalem was where God's presence dwelt and where his name was glorified. And now it's destroyed. And Nehemiah reads the Psalms and says, I feel the same way. I want to weep. So the whole point of Scripture is to change our hearts, to make us see as God sees. And then hopefully, not only will we see, but we will start having love for others. Somebody asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your strength, your soul, and your mind. And then Jesus said, and, or the proof of your love for God, is you'll love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, it's easy to say, I love God. It's hard to love your neighbor. But if you love your neighbor... It's kind of proof that you love God. And so what happened for Nehemiah is he started looking and listening to his brother recount the story of all the people in terrible situation back in Israel. And he cared about them. He cared about them. The walls were down and his heart was broken. Isaiah 54 talks about how God wants to wake us up morning by morning he wants to teach us the word that will help sustain the weary. As if people in this world are tired, they're weary. And God wants to use you to help them. And so in verse 4, back in Nehemiah, it says that he sat down and he wept. When he heard about the broken walls, when he considered the condition of the people's plight, their vulnerability, their poverty, when he heard about the suffering, he wept. It means he was given a burden by God. A burden is a godly 
bothering. I'm bothered. I'm mad. A burden is a spiritual agitation. I just can't not think about it. It's genuine heart hurt for the plight of people. What breaks your heart? When you meditate on God, when you consider his, his dream for human beings, his design, the world that he wants in his creation, and then when you look at the world that is, there's a difference. We call it a dissonance. It doesn't, it, they're not in harmony. And the question is, does that difference, the dissonance, upset you? Does it bother you? Are you bothered? For me as a pastor, I am paid to be bothered. I'm supposed to care. That's why they pay me, to be a caring person. But how can you not be when people come into your office and they're dying and their eyes are bloodshot and their families are falling apart and they're miserable? Like when I look out, when I look out on you guys, I, I, I know what's behind your faces. I'm allowed in. I get to see and hear the anguish. And people are broken. Everything from health, finances, marriages, personal sins that people can't get past, porn, violence, apathy, arrogance, the mockery of God, and just failure. Did you know, did you know this church is full of broken people? Did you know this little teeny community is, I mean, it's full of broken people. Do you know our world is falling apart? And God sees all of it. And God wants to alleviate its pain. And so do you know what God does? As he kind of dishes out different burdens on different people so we all can join in to help alleviate all the pain. That's how he does it. God uses us to alleviate pain. You want me to tell you specifically what breaks my heart? And uh, I think it's good for you to know what, you're, what I'm burdened with as your pastor. Um, I derive these things first and foremost from what I read and hear. This has to regulate your brain. That's the only way I know how to put it. And I'm bothered by three main things, and specifically most of it's ignorance to these things. And the first one is this. Ever since I've become a Christian, the concept of hell scares me half to death. The study of Scripture tells me that hell is real. And I am convinced, I am convinced you just can't swat the idea away like a fly. The reason why is I have done so many funerals over the last 10 years, I am certain that all of you are going to die. I'm certain of it. And when you die, 
Death is a doorway. It's a doorway either to utter bliss or complete despair. And if you do not consider the ramifications of eternal condemnation, I don't think you'll ever be satisfied with life. So, for instance, I grew up on Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. My, my sister would always play it. And it's, uh, I don't know if you know the folk group, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, but they have some pretty famous songs. They sang a lot of songs at Woodstock, but I, I like their music. David Crosby died four days ago. His last tweet, here's what he did on his last tweet. His last tweet was about heaven. Here's what he said about heaven. I heard the place is overrated and awfully cloudy. Oh, he's so funny. Aren't celebrities so cool, rock stars? So it's not overrated. It's either incredible bliss or oh my. It's real. That burdens me, I can't even tell you. Second thing I have a burden for, I have a burden for men in our culture from age 18 to 35. And my burden is singular. I want them to love the church. Jesus Christ paid for the church with his own blood. And men about 18 to 35 are like, who cares? I don't need the church. There's this really weird thing. It's, it really bothers me. It is so easy for people to forgive people outside of the church who have sinned or done something boneheaded. It's so easy because they're outside the church. But it is so hard for people to forgive people in the church who've sinned or done something boneheaded. Somebody outside the church sins, oh, that's just because, you know. But if somebody in the church, how dare they? We are supposed to love the brethren first because we're just as broken as those on the outside. But we're supposed to show love one for another. How do they know you're Christians? By your love. And what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. What's that third part? Love keeps no record of wrong. Here's my third thing I'm really broken about. This is a hard one to talk about because I, it's so confusing. But my biggest frustration, but my biggest burden is how do we love the poor? And I'm not talking politically. I'm so sick of that. And I'm not talking about what I call sentimental love for the poor where because I cry, I'm done caring. There is one side to caring for the poor where we cannot be tight-fisted. If we see a need and we can meet the need, we must have open hands. There's a devilish attitude that has snuck into church. And the devilish attitude is my stuff is mine, I've earned it, and the poor, they deserve where they're at. Oh, that's devilish. I, the reason why it's devilish is if it wasn't for God's grace and mercy and forgiving me. But there's another side, though. There's another side to where we have to tell the truth. We've got to tell the truth. And what the truth is, is God has made every human being with dignity and honor. And often government money just ruins dignity. And it, and it cripples people. 
And we have to be careful of this soft bigotry of low expectations when it comes to the poor, people who are richer. And they're like, well, they can't, be, they can't succeed without my help and the help of other people's money. That's just not true. It's a fine line, and the fine line is answered in relationships. You need to have relationships with people that in need so you can hear them, know them, but also tell them the truth. And the truth is, God has made them to also work and have ambition, have dreams. That's a tough one for me. I do have a fourth, if you don't mind me sharing it. I have a fourth burden. My fourth burden, it's, it's a big burden for me with some of my friends and just um, this gender confusion and seeing homosexuality as healthy is a pernicious lie. Especially when you look at Scripture. When you look at Scripture, here's all I'm saying. God's judgment seems to always come right on the heels of sexual perversion when it takes over a culture. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, Romans 1. When you read Revelations, God judged the church that was following the sins of Jezebel, which were sexual immorality. And there's going to be a day of reckoning. Because people have snubbed God's design. And if I really love people, I'll tell them about that design, even if they don't like me. So I ask you, what breaks your heart? The unborn? Lost souls? The testimony of this church? The, your kids to be taught? The hospital in Togo, that was unbelievable last week. Unbelievable, because she had a burden for those people, and you could tell. And I would say write down that, write it down, because we should not just cry and say, oh, that's sad. He wants us to respond, just like Nehemiah, and he wants us to respond in three ways. When your heart is broken, he first of all wants you to pray. Look at verses 4 through 6 of Nehemiah. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for some days I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, meaning you have all power, you can do anything, and you got to do something about this. And he continues, he says, you keep your covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive, God. Please listen and please open your eyes and hear my prayer, the prayer of your servant. And I've been praying to you day and night. When you begin to care, you'll begin to pray. And I'd say it like this, passion for prayer is directly related to God and others, the burden he puts upon you. And you go to him because he's able and you're not. That's why you pray. Maybe there is not much prayer because there's not much burden. I heard this phrase this week, and this is fascinating, and I, I want to think more about this. This one person says, do you know why people have boring lives? Because they bury their burdens that God gave them. 
That is fascinating. That means that God has spoken to you and he's aroused you, but you've silenced it because you would rather do other things. And when you do those other things, they harden your heart. When your heart gets hardened, you're bored to tears with life. You just want more entertainment. And the more entertainment you get, the law of diminishing returns is you need more. It's, that, it's my analogy of circus peanut. You eat a circus peanut, you got to eat more. And if you eat five of them, they lodge in your belly and you don't want to eat steak because you're sick. Nehemiah also realizes in 8 through 10 that power through prayer comes through the promises God already gave. So if you look at 8 through 10, you could say, he's saying, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, so he's relaying back to Deuteronomy. He basically said, if the nations are unfaithful, God's going to scatter. Remember God when you said that? But if people start returning and obey my commands, and no matter where they're at, You'll gather them, you'll hear them, and you will bring them back to the name of Jerusalem. And then he says, they're your servants, and by your people you've redeemed by your great strength. So he's appealing to God's earlier promise. He said, in Deuteronomy, you promise if people are scattered and we prayed, you'd bring us back. Do it. You said it. And I think this is called the you said prayer. The more promises you know of God's word, the more you can pray to God, God, you said, you said, God, you said. Second thing about broken hearts is they take ownership. Six and seven, look what he says in six and seven. So Nehemiah is a pretty, I'm like, he's a pretty amazing guy. And he says this, Lord, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Day and night. And then he says this, I confess the, confess the sins, we Israelites. So he's joining in the sin. He's saying, I'm part of this too. Not only that, he says, including myself. Start with me. He takes ownership of his own sin and confesses it. Confesses it before God. And ownership is a sign that God is starting to plow the soil of your hardened heart. So you could say it like this, I need to first change if I'm going to ever expect anybody else to change. Why are the walls broken? Nehemiah said, probably me. I'm lazy. I got to do something. What's wrong with the world? It's probably me. Why is there so much anger? It's probably me. Why isn't there reconciliation? Because I'm stubborn. Sin must end with me. Revival always begins with me. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, I will heal their land. But you first have to humble yourself. So, the practical application of this is we must all learn to be honest with God because he already knows who we are. I think prayer is him telling us who we are. It's so we can be honest with ourselves. Prayer is only real when we stop playing games with God. He just wants honesty. And so when you pray, be honest. You know how prayer really should begin? Just tell him, God, I am tired of my life. 
I'm really tired. I can't do this anymore. God, I'm mad. I'm really mad. you got to help me. Or God, I'm, I'm lazy. I'm lazy. Or I'm anxious. I'm, I'm sick. I don't want to live like this anymore, God. you got to do something. Prayer begins with honesty. As one man said, stop sanitizing your prayers because God can handle them. Which leads to the third thing a broken heart does is they take action. Look at verse 11. So verse 11, Nehemiah is praying, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. And then he says this, give your servant, he's talking about himself, give your servant success today. Why? What are you going to do, Nehemiah? By granting him, the king, favor in the presence or of this man, or giving me favor in the presence of the king. Here's what he's doing. He knows he's got to do something about it. He knows the only person that can help him is the king. He knows this king that he's speaking to in this book, earlier in the book of Ezra, told Israel they can't rebuild the wall because he doesn't trust them. He doesn't trust them. So Artaxerxes put out this decree. They can build the temple, but they cannot build the wall. Don't let them build the wall. Nehemiah, in his heart's like, but the wall's got to be built, so i got to go back to this guy who made a decree not to build the wall and ask him to build the wall. That could cost him his job, his head, his life. But he had to do something. He had to do something. And if I can do something about it, I must. So your question is, what must you do to your burden? Look at what you wrote down, if you wrote anything down. What do you need to do? Ask yourself. I, I see Missy over there. Missy always has had a burden for the law. Unborn babies. So what does she do? Gets involved in Alpha Women's Center. Why would you do that? It's crazy. Ask yourself, what must I do? Did you know God placed the burden on your heart because he wants you to do something about it? Nehemiah was given the burden not so he could tell other people, but so he could do something about it. It's like the old story of this guy. He joins the foot, He's a quarterback, and the, this uh, coach asks him to join. Transfers from another school. The coach sees him and says, I'd like you to go out for the football team. The guy goes to practice, and he's watching practice, and all the other quarterbacks are terrible. He's like, this team stinks. Their quarterbacks are terrible. So the next day, he doesn't go out for the football team. The coach says, why don't you go out for the football team? He said, because there's no quarterback. He said, exactly. That's why I asked you. So don't wait for others. The burden's meant for you. But you're probably saying, but who am I? I'm nothing special. I'm no one special. I'm just a plumber. I'm not a pastor. I'm a mechanic, not a missionary. I'm just a mom. Did you know Nehemiah wasn't really that special? Like he wasn't a prophet or a king. Look at what it says at the end of verse, at the end of chapter 1. It says, I was cupbearer to the king. What does that mean? So you have the king, Artaxerxes. Nehemiah's job 
was every time they served wine to the king, he had to sip the wine, and every time they gave the king a meal, he had to take a little bite. Because if they poisoned the king, he would be the first one to die. That was his job. Some people say it was a really high honor because he got the ear of the king, and the king respected him and honored him. Some people say it was kind of a dangerous job. You don't know how long you live. Some people say it was a job of honor because people who respected Nehemiah wouldn't poison it because they wouldn't want It's kind of an interesting job, but it isn't a prophet or a king. And Nehemiah wrote this book. The cupbearer was used. Do you know why? Because he had a broken heart. The reason God's going to use you is all it requires is a broken heart. That's all it requires. So what bothers you? What really bothers you? Why do you think God has placed you on this earth? Let me say it like this. Is your life boring? If it is boring, ask yourself this. What burden have you been bearing? I was thinking, I was thinking about it. Our prayer group's on Tuesday night, and it's interesting because people that join that Tuesday night prayer group, I was reflecting on it this week, they have burdens, so they come. And it is not boring. So ask yourself, what bothers you? 